Welcome back. We're back. So let's talk about God. Let's talk about God. How's everybody doing out there in radio land? Oh, this isn't radio. This is, this is podcast, podcast land. We, we kid about when we come in here in our uh, underground bunker in an undisclosed location uh, that we come in here and we cast pods. We do, whatever that means. I mean, if it's a podcast, you cast pods. But I hope everybody's doing good. I'm ramped up today. I'm fired up. Ready to go. Well, and I know, everybody knows, okay, it's this is kind of weird, but it's so weird. But like, this will come out in October, right? It's yeah. October. When you people who are listening to us right now, our wonderful listeners, our podcasters, you are... Um, you're listening to us, but we're doing this in September, and this is the first week of September. So I'm just ramped. I got my Clemson orange. Mm. Shirt I almost on. wore a shirt just like that today. We would have been matching. We would have matched. That would have been awesome. This is where we need it video. Been something. We need videos. So we been need something. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I, yeah. We'd have looked so goofy. <laughs> yeah, but we're we're pulling for the T I G. Anyway, yeah. um, we're pulling for the Tigers, and it's spring. I got up this morning. It was 61 degrees. I think. It's October now, y'all don't care, but just think backwards. It's so weird you have to think back, but oh, it was 60-something degrees mm. this morning when I got this morning and walked my two miles and spent my time with Jesus, and it was just, and it, it's dove season opens this Saturday. Clemson plays Georgia, and by this point, everybody knows whether or not we won or lost. We don't know yet, so that makes we it interesting. Like, it's, as our listeners are listening, Clemson's undefeated. Ugalele is healthy. And Everybody's we, good. We spanked Georgia. We absolutely destroyed them. Wow. We're number one ranked. This is going to be great in October to see if you're right. I hope <laughs> you're right. The entire Alabama football team ha- is stranded on an island. Everybody's safe and healthy. There's unlimited food and medical supplies. They <laughs> just can't get off for some out. reason, so they can't play. All Everybody's right. fine. All right, so let's have a little fun here. Our listeners are going to love this because now they know the answers. Did Miami beat? Alabama this weekend. Who knows? No, you got to make your prediction. Or I'm predicting. You're predicting. Oh, I thought they this already was just know. A fun future. Game. All of our listeners are listening right. So say that again. Did Miami beat Alabama or did Alabama beat Miami? No, Alabama beat Miami. Alabama beat Miami. That's easy. Okay, who won between Florida State and Notre Dame? Notre Dame. Who won between um, Ohio State and Minnesota? Ohio State. Who won between Penn State and Wisconsin? Who? Wisconsin. All right, who won between North Carolina? Is, are you impressed that I have all of them memorized? This is awesome. Who, who, who won between North Carolina and Virginia Tech? Ooh. They're playing at Blacksburg. Georgia Tech still got that like newish coach, right? Yes. I'm going to say North Carolina. So you're going to still go with North Carolina, away game they won. I'm going to go with North Carolina. Okay. All right. All the listeners right now are just either going, yeah, listen to him, or they're laughing at us. Like, what <laughs> an idiot. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. We don't know. So, but anyway, so I'm ramped up. I'm just, I'm fired up. I'm fired up today. So, this is great. Are you fired up? I'm fired up. You, I'm just glad it's getting cooler. Yeah. The cooler weather is awesome. Like, that's, that's good with me. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm geared up for it. Oh, yeah. And let's see. I'm going to be a dad soon, so that's pretty sick. That's true. Yeah. So from, from, from a little to, bit longer left. From today, it's two months. Two months. From the time of this podcast, it's going to be a month. Yeah. Just had my birthday. You did. Got all kinds of great presents You hit the gifts. big 2-5. big 2-5. Quarter of a century. Oh, yeah. Do, do you, does it feel weird? Does it feel different? No. 
you're old now because you're a student pastor, but to your kids, you're old. You know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like getting to the point. Well, no, I've been there, but like even the high schoolers, like I'm like 10 years older than some of them. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's weird. Yeah. Being a dad will be great. You excited about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We got the nursery ready. Dad will help you there with the mm-hmm. paint and uh, y'all geared up. So. It's cool. No, oh, yeah. Grandson number four. I'm pumped. Oh, yeah. Me Gonna too. spoil that child rotten, <laughs> pump him full of sugar, and send him home to you. <laughs> you just get ready. <laughs> You'll just hype him up, and then when he gets home, I'll have to lay down the law. So Yeah, lay down the law. Oh, oh. it was coming. There it is, folks. I was scrambling, too, and then I know. it just opened up. I could see your wheels were spinning, and I just kept feeding you. I knew sooner or later I could help you out here. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to incorporate law or guide into yeah. one of those, and I didn't well, know which one. It should be immoral for you to keep doing those puns. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, obviously, we already know they already looked at the Everybody podcast knows. title. We're That's in our yeah, series. We lost, all our, we lost all of our little spring there with that, but we're still going to keep doing them just because. We, so, we're going to talk about part three today. We've talked about the law. Uh, the, the uses of the law, right? right? And today we're talking about the law as a guide. Is that right? That's correct. So what does that mean? What Help our folks figure out what does that mean? So if you haven't listened to the past two, go ahead and listen to the past two, but it's okay. You can listen to them like out of order because it's not really in order. Basically the law, God's law has three uses. It's moral law. One, it's a curb for human sinfulness. We explained that. Two, it's a mirror so that uh, we look at the law, and it tells us who we are. We're sinners. We've broken the law. But the third use, right, if those two are for non-Christians, the third use of the law is for Christians, and it is a guide, meaning it guides us in how we are to live our lives in holiness and righteousness, reflecting the image of God. So this is unique in that it's specifically for Christians who have the Spirit, who have been made new, who can actually begin to obey the law and conform to it. So it's a guide to look like Christ. And again, we're not talking about the civil laws of Israel. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about the ceremonial laws like killing bulls and goats and and all the things that you had to do that have been fulfilled in Christ. That's right. Um, we're talking about the moral law. Mm-hmm. So things like the Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and soul, love your neighbors, you love yourself. There are a lot of moral laws. The Ten yeah. Commandments sort of encapsulate. They're the basis, the ground, and then it all kind of flows out of it. Right, but any time in the Bible, old or new, that you're reading moral directives, mm-hmm. then that's what we're talking about. Those things are true. Mm-hmm. And we've said before, we'll say it again, that the Ten Commandments and the moral law of God in general have been true for all people at all times, in all places. That's right. All the way back to Adam and Eve. Am I right? That, yeah, that's correct. Because as you broke it down, you said we don't uh, obey the national law. Because the national law of Israel, though its laws are based on the moral principles of God, they are particular laws for a particular people located in a particular place, particular nation. That is national laws. Uh, we live in America, so we don't have to obey those. That's like saying we're bound to obey Chinese laws or Australian laws. No, we're in a different country, so that's fine. Then you've got the ceremonial laws like you talked about, which is for worship. And when we mean that Christ fulfilled those, the ceremonial laws were a shadow, a vague picture. They were pointing towards what Christ would really do. So take something like animal sacrifice for the sins of Israel. Well, Christ fulfilled that by becoming our once-for-all sacrifice. 
So we're not just ditching it. Christ fulfills it. And so there's a reason we can kind of get get rid of that one because the reality has come. They're, they're needless. They're, yeah, they're needless because the real thing is here. They were just pointing towards something. But the moral law is different. Where the national laws for a nation that doesn't exist, ceremonial laws for Christ who fulfilled it, God doesn't change who he is, right? What it means to be holy and righteous encapsulated in this eternal God, that doesn't change. So we don't get rid of the moral law. We have no reason to because God doesn't change. This is who he is. The ceremonial law pointed to the Christ which was to come, but the moral law points to the God who is. Yeah, and who always has been. And has been and will be. Will that, be. That does, that's a, it's unchanging even that's as right. God's nature, holy nature is unchanging. That's right. So that's why we are focusing in on this today and why the moral law is so important. So the New Testament has a lot to say about the moral law. So we're just going to kind of break it down. We didn't say it, but we basically just gave her a 30-second definition. So I feel like we can just go into it unless you'd like. I had something. Uh, The moral law of God functions as the rule of life for the believer. That's what we're saying, right? That's what we're ultimately going to is it becomes the standard um, it is the pre- and, and not only for the believer, it really is the prescription for human behavior. That's right. So it doesn't. Wh- while we will do it because we love God and serve God, murder is still wrong for a non-believer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so and and I, I I've read this. I thought it was because we like to throw out things at our our listeners. Um, we're talking today about the didactic or normative use of the law. Mm-hmm. versus the ceremony or national use. So That's good. Yeah, I like that. So let's look at the New Testament. Today we're just walking through various scriptures about the law. I think the kind of basis for our use and our understanding of the law comes from Christ himself. So Jesus is getting up, and he's ready to preach the Sermon on the Mount, and he's already into it just a little bit. And here's why this is so important. Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount, maybe you don't know this. We we might have said it on a previous podcast. He's functioning as a new and better Moses. So think about this. Moses is bringing the kingdom of God. You know, he's bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt into a kingdom. He goes up on a mountain. He receives the law of God, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, and he comes down with it. So now Jesus shows up. He's announced this kingdom. And as a new Moses, he preaches the sermon on the mount. And so just as Moses went on a mountain, Christ is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, but with authority. So Moses Jesus, received the word. Jesus was the word. Exactly. And so now we've, we've kind of got this, uh, this where Jesus is the new and better Moses. And so he's preaching on the law and the moral law, and he's actually going into greater depth. So this is what Jesus says. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets or the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven." But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't say, hey, we're here to ditch the law. We're here to toss it. We're here to throw it out. I'm doing something new. That law is useless. He says, no, no, no. We're not getting rid of the law. 
I've actually come to fulfill the law. And so that's very similar to what we talked about with the ceremonial law. He's come to be the reality of what it pictured. But Jesus has also come to be perfect for us. So when it comes to morality, Jesus fulfills the law in the sense that he does everything right on our behalf. He he never breaks one law. But then he goes on to apply it to us directly, and he says, in fact, not one uh, King James Version jot or tittle is, right. is going to go away until all things are fulfilled and accomplished. And then he tells us in the kingdom, um, you can't just go on breaking the laws. You can't go breaking the commands. If you do it and you teach others to do it, you're going to be least. And so Jesus begins to set up the law as something that um, is around and that we are bound to the moral law in the kingdom of heaven. And then we know that he's talking about the moral law because he immediately begins preaching on morality, on the Ten Commandments. So he immediately starts dealing with things like adultery or murder or lying. And so he's taking these common understandings of these Ten Commandments and saying, you have heard it said, you know, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, speaking with authority, you can even lust after a woman. But not feasts and circumcisions and sacrifices. He's, He's dealing with morality. And I think this is really important because I cannot tell you the times that I have heard or read or even talked to somebody who says, well, you know, we're not under the law anymore. And sometimes they'll even say, we're not under the law, we're under grace. As if there's no law anymore. And I understand what they're trying to say. That's, just, a, that's a biblical phrase, but they might not be interpreting it right. <laughs> right. And that's the thing that I think makes these podcasts so strong, and especially this one, is we've said it repeatedly. You're not under the law, national law, ceremonial law, but you are still under the the moral law of God. Everybody's always under the moral law of God. And so that's why we just keep saying it because there are people who say, well, I'm not in the law anymore, as if I can just do whatever, do whatever I want, make up my own, and that's moral relativism. I and, mean, And if you look back at our last episode, we're not saying you're under the law as in you have to be justified by the law. You're justified by Christ. You're right, God's not looking at you saying, if you break one, I'm sending you to hell. That's why Christ came. But we also don't mean, when Paul says you're not under the law, he doesn't mean delete the Ten Commandments. He means now you're made alive and you can't obey them by well, God's grace. As a sinner, you can't. Now, the law, the moral law still judges you. It always will apply to you, okay? So it's either going to judge you or affirm you, all right? So if I'm keeping it, it will affirm me. If I'm not keeping it, it will judge me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't save me. Okay, only Jesus can save me. Yeah. But if I'm saved, I will keep the law. If I'm not saved, I'm going to break the moral law mm-hmm. because sin in me will will defy that. Hey, can, can I have a little fun with this for Go a minute for with the Ten Commandments? So I was th- thinking about the Ten Commandments, and we're talking about, you know, people say, well, is it permanent? Is it? Yes. Think about the Ten Commandments, all right? When Moses received them, the Bible says they were written with the finger of God. Right? Mm-hmm. All right, Jesus said the finger of God is the Holy Spirit. He said, if I cast out demons by the Holy Spirit, then how do your children cast them out? All right, the synoptic gospel, another synoptic gospel, he says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, so we can put those two together, the finger of God is a symbol for the Holy Spirit, God mm-hmm. and the Holy Spirit. All right, so we know that the Ten Commandments were written, the Bible says, by the finger of God, so it is a work of the Holy Spirit, the law. Mm-hmm. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, all those. 
that, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Two, it was written on stone, not wood, not anything. It was written on stone. Stone, what's etched in stone is permanent. Mm-hmm. So when it was etched in stone, that means it's permanent, which makes it absolute. So people say, I don't believe in absolute moral truth. God, by putting it on the stone, was symbolically saying, this is absolute truth. Where, was, where were the Ten Commandments placed after Moses had them? Where were they placed? Do you remember? In the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant. What covered the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, the like tabernacle is up your ass. Well, the mercy seat. Or the mercy seat. Yeah, I got right, you. The mercy seat. Yeah. So the mercy seat was the lid. And so that's that had the seraph, the seraph, you know, the change, mm-hmm. the angels. That's, that's where, that's where the presence of God was supposed to dwell. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have the finger of God, work of the Holy Spirit's divine. It's put in, etched in stone. It's permanent. It's absolute. It's placed in the Ark of the Covenant. It has, it has the divine, it's anointed, if you will, by God's presence. The lid is put on it. It is sealed for eternity. You like it so far? That's good. Okay. And finally, the number 10, do you know what the number 10 is in numerology? I don't. Completion. Oh, nice. Which then, which then is a direct statement that what God has said morally is complete. He doesn't need any help. Mm-hmm. We don't need to add to it. And we don't take away. What do you do when you add or take away from God's moral law? You have now stepped into moral relativism. Mm-hmm. I'll determine what's right for me. You determine what's right for you. Do you like that? That's really good. I thought that was pretty good. The permanency of God's law. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. So we've we've seen from the way God, from who God is, that God is unchanging. We've seen from the way God's presented it through everything you just said about the permanency. We've seen what Christ has said about it. So Christ is very, very clear these moral laws, God has not come to change. And in fact, in the kingdom of heaven, you are bound to obey them, not for your justification, but you are bound to obey them to live morally and for me. Well, as a reflection of your sanctification, exactly, yes. which is the next step. Um, Romans 3.31 says, and, and Paul's writing here, do we then make the law void through faith? And the answer is no. Just In fact, be- we uphold the law. That's what he says. Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Mm-hmm. That's good. So that's interesting is that the moral law is now established in the life of faith. The key verse in the Sermon on the Mount you read, Mm -hmm. which is where Jesus said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. That is the pivotal verse in the entire chapters of five, six, and seven of the Sermon on the Mount. Did you know that? That's the pivotal verse. Yeah. Because as he's saying, here's what you people have done to try to be right. Keep Here's the, what I say. Well, keep the law. Yeah. That's what the Pharisees did. They were incredibly legalistic. But right, he said, but here's what I'm telling you. Yeah. This is what you have to do. And your righteousness is a is a is a work of legal law, of the law, of the ceremonial law. He said, You're neglecting what matters, which is the moral law. And he's and he's recognizing that they are only getting at it at the surface level. That they are, as Jesus calls them, whitewashed tombs. Mm-hmm. So they're getting by with the base level of like, well, just don't commit adultery, or you know, whatever. You can swear by something as long as you you know do what you swear to do. And Jesus is going, no, there's a heart behind these things. I don't want you to just not commit adultery. I don't even want you to want to, you know, yeah. I don't want you to just not commit murder. I, I, I want you to have love for your neighbor. And he's getting at their kind of surface level spirituality. And that's why he says, you got to be more righteous than them. This is a fake dead righteousness. Well, the <laughs> Westminster larger catechism says where sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. 
So where sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. So for example, where it says, you shall not kill. So that's what you were just saying. That you were saying the opposite is also true. So yes, you shall not kill, but the opposite is true also is you you should value life. Yeah. You should protect life. You should you should cherish life mm-hmm. and, and not take a life and protect. So I, th- I think that's good that there is the letter of the law, but there's also a spirit of the law behind it. That's good. That's really good. So now we know from Jesus, straight from Jesus, that the law is to be upheld. It's good. It's for those in the kingdom. Um, the, the next kind of very short verse I wanted to read, really dealing with the nature of God, um, is in First Peter. So the apostle Peter writes this, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, and he quotes Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. That's First Peter chapter 1, 15 through 16. So it's interesting that Peter is calling Christians to be holy because God is holy, and then his rationale is God giving the law, right? This is Leviticus. He's giving the law of God to his people, and what is God saying? Hey, this law I'm giving you right here, this Levitical law, is an expression of my holiness. So when you see the law you see my holiness. So when you obey the law, you're, you're like me. And so be holy because I'm holy. And so Peter, by taking this verse and in its context, is essentially telling us God is holy and the law is the expression of his holiness. And just like for them, for us today, we are called to be holy as expressed in the Ten Commandments for our God is holy. Yeah, and to be and to be holy is to be distinctly different mm-hmm. from or separate from, and and to just be really pragmatic here, y'all. When you when you don't lie and you tell the truth, that makes you different from somebody who's unsaved who will lie mm-hmm. to get out of trouble or get their way. When you don't covet what somebody else has, that makes you distinctly different. When you honor your parents, when you don't use the Lord's name in vain, et cetera, et cetera you are being distinctly different and other than what you were before you were saved or what other sinners are like. That's Holiness isn't this kind of somehow higher place I got to try to reach, higher plane spiritually, and only certain people can be holy. We're all holy. It's just a matter of living out holiness, which is Mm -hmm. living out the moral law of God by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And it doesn't necessarily mean like a complete separation in the sense that, like, what what I mean is you want the world to see your holiness. Like, you don't want to, like, just disappear from everybody and never make eye monk. contact with a sinner. Yeah. Like, you want to be a light to the nations. Israel, their nation was physically placed in the middle of all of these pagan nations around them. And, and through their holiness, they were to be a light to those nations, which is eventually what Christ would do and his church would do, that in the midst of all these sinful pagan nations— they would take the Roman Empire for Christ. So let's be that light yeah. through through holiness. That's good. Um, then we move on to Paul's use of the law. And here's the reason that I threw this in here. This is just to give you more examples that the New Testament continues to base its morality, not on a vague spirituality, or I, I've heard it used um, that there's this sort of like, well, the Spirit's in me, so I just naturally know it's right. And I don't need to even look at the Ten Commandments anymore. And so I'm putting this in there that we don't rely on like a vague spirituality or just like 
just ask the Holy Spirit what's right and wrong and never look at the Ten Commandments. The New Testament routinely goes back to the Ten Commandments for the basis of morality. And so Paul uses this in Ephesians 6 too. Children, obey your parents and the Lord because this is right. And then he quotes, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise. Quotes again, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. And so I, I really only put that to say, hey, Paul is continuing to base his morality directly on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments tells children to obey their father and mother. As Christians, we're going to do the same thing today. And and can we just comment on that for a minute? Mm-hmm. So it's not like if you always obey your parents and honor them that God's going to guarantee that you live 100, to yes. be 100. That's that's not how that works. What what that's saying is this this will work for anybody. That because this is a this is a moral law, it'll mm-hmm. work for a sinner. Is if you will listen to your parents, your parents have wisdom, they love you, they're going to protect you and you honor them and obey them, then they're going to help you make good decisions, right decisions that will keep you safe and keep you from getting killed <laughs> and dying a premature death. Yeah. And, and, and again, you got to remember the context of back then in those days, there were a lot of things that could kill them back in their days. But the same is true here. You know, we, we, if you'll listen, it'll keep you from getting in trouble to help you to live a longer life because they, they'll, they'll give you wisdom. Mm-hmm. They'll share their wisdom with you. And we, from each generation to each generation, the, the, the next generation teaches their kids that wisdom and the next one. And then that wisdom helps you to make right decisions so that, so that you'll live longer. I even think about it in the sense, not just passing down practical life tips, but specifically for Christians, it's a passing down of the faith. Yes. Children, listen to your parents, not just in the good decisions they tell you to make, but in their faith and their understanding of who Christ is. Like imagine God telling that to the first generation of Israelites. If they would have just faithfully passed down the faith and then the children listen, that would just perpetuate it. How many, how many, you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. And how many kids have said, if I just did what my parents told me to, I'm talking about adults. If I just, man, my life wouldn't have been so hard. I've mm-hmm. lived hard because he said that it may go well with you. I've just lived hard. Well, yeah, if you just listen to your dad, your mom, you know, they 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 love you and they're telling you the thing that'll help you. Mm-hmm. But if you're stubborn and you just do your own thing, do the wrong thing, then you'll live a hard life and life doesn't go well with you. And then ultimately, I think this is a principle, if I can get fancy, that has eschatological significance. Yes. And what I mean is this, is that this pr- this commandment to obey father and mother has a principle behind it. Like you were talking about a couple episodes ago, which is to obey your authority. And then our ultimate authority, our ultimate parental authority is our heavenly father, is God the father. It, in a sense, kind of sets the standard for listening to our heavenly authority. And ultimately, when we listen to him, <laughs> we will live long in the land. And I mean, eternally yeah, long we'll live in eternally. the land. That's right. Um, and then Paul says elsewhere, he says this in um, Romans 13, 8 through 10. Um, this is just another good example of the way uh, the New Testament and Paul specifically quotes the Old Testament um, as a means for morality. He says this, Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's important. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Now, I've talked about this earlier. I've I've heard it said before, and this is such a goofy principle, that I've heard Christian teachers and pastors say something like, the Old Testament has been abrogated. it's, It's old news. We can get rid of it. But then it, you have to deal with this question, well, how do I know how to live? How, how do I know the difference between right and wrong? And I've, I've seen their response to, to those questions be, well, you just live in love. You just live in New Testament love. You just live in Christ-like love. And so what they begin to do is they begin to create this false dichotomy between the Ten Commandments, between the law, and then what it means to love. But Paul, here in the New Testament, who is really just quoting Jesus, doesn't build this false dichotomy between the Ten Commandments, between the law, and between love. In fact, he says, love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. He says that any other commandment is summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we also, we often talk about how the we call it the second table of the law, meaning all of the commandments after the command to obey the Sabbath is summarized by love for neighbor. And so we don't create this false dichotomy that says, well, now that Christ has come, the law is obsolete, so we delete the Ten Commandments. But then we obey morality by simple love. No, no, no. If you want to know what true love looks like, if you want to know what it really means to love your neighbor, go read the Ten Commandments. This is not some sort of stringent, legalistic, boring, dry, obsolete something or another. This is the perfect um, example, the, the, the perfect format for what it actually means to love your neighbor. So the law is not bad, depressing, whatever else. The law is love. And just like Paul does, we need to return again and again to learn what it means to love. Well, Jesus said, you know, the, the Pharisee came to him and said, what is the greatest commandment? Yeah. Okay, so he wanted to know, what is the greatest moral law? What's the greatest one? And instead of Jesus picking one of the 10, he picked the verse that says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body. And then he said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. And I remember my dad preaching this for years that you get, you hold your hand up. So I got my hands up here in the studio. So you got both hands up. You got 10 fingers for the 10 laws. But but then you you try to remember the Ten Commandments. Well, if you'll just take your two thumbs and put them up, love God, love your neighbor. Yeah. If you'll love God and love your neighbor, the the um the the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments are are split into into two categories. It's yep. how you deal with God and how you deal with people. So if you'll love God, you'll you'll not use his name in vain. You know, I have any other gods before him, and you'll remember the Sabbath day. And then if you love your neighbor, then you won't kill your neighbor and covet your neighbor and lie to your neighbor mm-hmm. and whatever. And that that's just, it's great. It's classic. Yeah. What God in his wisdom said, it's love. Love is what drives the law. It's That's why Paul calls it the law of love. Yeah. You know, there's a new command I give you. It's you love one another. And so um, th- that's, that's a huge deal. Yeah, it is. It helps us to understand it. Yeah. Because I think often the perception and I think it comes from a misunderstanding of of Paul, and I just kind of mean it like the everyday level, because I know, like, I'm just talking about when I'm like in middle school and high school reading this, if you read through Romans, you might get the understanding that Paul's saying the law is just like bad, or we just toss it out, or it's, 
you know, it's whatever without the proper context. And I think we can approach the Ten Commandments as these kind of like dry, like blah kind of things. Uh, on the surface, they don't look like, you know, whatever we picture love is, but that's exactly what they are. It's loving our neighbor. And, and Jesus coming to fulfill the law, like we mentioned earlier, doesn't just mean that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, which he did, but he fulfills the moral law. So all of the Ten Commandments, Jesus followed through with. He, he didn't do the things he wasn't supposed to do, and then he, he did the, the, what am I trying to say, the opposite. For instance, Jesus never murdered anybody, and he didn't want to, and in fact, he shows up to give life to the world. <laughs> right. you know, we can just kind of keep going on and on. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, and yet he obeys Joseph and Mary perfectly as a child. He does everything perfect, and so we see the law fulfilled in Christ. Well, outside of Jesus, the moral law is is a duty, a, mm-hmm. a duty to be performed. Within Jesus, the the moral law becomes not a duty, but my desire. That's good. Can you see that? I think it, that's right. It's, it's, it, it becomes part of my, if you will grant me this, my spiritual DNA. What would be a better term is my new nature, my mm-hmm. new, my, the new man, the new me. It reminds me of what John says in 1 John, and people take this verse uh, out of context, perfect love casts out all fear. Right. And so now I'm not under fear of condemnation. I'm right. not under fear of wrath of, anymore. Or dying and going to hell. That's dying. what that verse means. And so now I don't approach the Ten Commandments going, I'm terrified. Like, I've got to get this down or I'm going to hell. I'm in perfect security in the fulfillment of the law in Christ. I've put on Christ, and now I approach the Ten Commandments not out of fear of wrath, but of love of God. Well, yeah, I tell the truth because the the one who said I am the truth lives inside of me. That's right. And the one, I don't want to kill anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to wish anybody dead because the one who is the resurrection and the life lives inside of me. He's Mm -hmm. changed me. He's changed my nature. He's changed my mind. He's changed my thought process. That's why when you get saved, it's a radical transformation. And it's one of love. I, I think it was Martin Luther who said, God doesn't need my good works, but my neighbor does. And his emphasis was, God doesn't need me to like do all these things to serve him. He's in need of nothing. But when I'm saved, the love of God and neighbor comes in, and my neighbor needs my good works. Well, a, and I'm free to do them for their sake, for their sake, not mine. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the, and that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's and right. Your good works. Um, that's really good. Um, it, you know, for the sinner, the law then becomes what I ought to do, mm-hmm. and I know what I ought to do. But for the Christian, it's what I want to do. That's right. That's what that's what I want to get across is when you get saved, it's not like somebody's got to go around and reprogram you. God reprograms you. Mm-hmm. It's called the renewing of your mind. And so the, this is this is something that really uh, becomes in, integral, and that's why you need to know right and wrong. Yeah. You need to read the Bible. You say, why do I need to read the Bible? Well, there are a lot of reasons you need to read the Bible. We can't list them all, but one of them is so that there can be a reaffirmation. For some people, a reprogramming. For some people, just a learning yeah, I mean, boy, if you grew up in a home where there was no Bible, no church, you know, you you got to be taught, mm-hmm. and so you learn. Here's here's the moral law of God, and and then I can learn it, embrace it as my moral law, and then I can teach it to my children. I can influence others with it. There's a lot of reasons why you need to know the moral law. Last night I, I preached on First Corinthians ten. And we need the moral law, and then we need the moral law put in practice because Paul basically starts off saying, 
uh, essentially the Old Testament saints weren't all that different from us. You know, they were they were under the sea and the cloud and baptized into Moses. They had the spiritual food and the rock that followed them and all this stuff. But he says, but God still wasn't pleased with them. So, so God was doing these amazing saving works in their life, but God wasn't still pleased with them. And, and he says, these things were written down for examples for mm-hmm. you and me. And then he lists off these litanies, this litany of sins that they committed, sexual immorality and uh, you know, complaining Five and of all of these different things. Yeah. And idolatry is the first one. And, and he goes all of the, and then he says it again in, in verse 11, these things were written, were written as examples for us. And then he says this really like often quoted verse, he says, you, you haven't been tempted by anything but what is common to humanity. And he's saying is like, look, like they had some awesome spiritual graces. They're real similar to you. God did some amazing things in their work, but you got the same temptations too. And the temptations you got are the ones that are common to humanity. And he says, so if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Right. These were written for your example so that you can stand up. And so we get in the scriptures not only to see Jesus and his wonderful grace everywhere, but we've got some pretty good examples of what not to do. Right. <laughs> and it's how wrong to commit adultery. It's wrong to test God, <laughs> tempt God. You know, all those, there was like five of yeah, them, I remember. Because yeah, yeah. I remember Evan Lewis Cole dealt with those in, the, in that book, Maximize Manhood. Uh-huh. You've read that. And yeah, so that's, that's, again, it's about doing what's right. If you boil this up, what's wrong, what's right, what's the right thing? What does God want me to do? What does God not want me to do? And yeah. ultimately, it's more than just about keeping a set of rules. Mm-hmm. It is it, Because even like you said, what Luther said, the works that I do, and that can be like baking a lady a cake or helping somebody mm-hmm. whose house caught on fire. But I think the moral laws um, obviously are for the sake of my neighbor because if I kill my neighbor, he's dead. Yeah, it's very unloving. You know, if I if I cheat with the neighbor's wife, you know that I've just broken up their family. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of those things inevitably. That's why I said the loss. It's not in half because I think it's six and four. Mm-hmm. But but it's about dealing with God and dealing with people. So how I live in my morality. That's why this idea of you can have your own personal morality and it doesn't affect anybody else. So mm-hmm. what I believe, leave me alone. It's not true. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not hurting anybody. It's not true. You're not an island. No man is an island. We are We are a community, mm. and we interact with one another. And there has, to be, there has to be a foundation of morality that can be accepted. Uh, and I know we haven't touched on this. It may be worth it, but moral relativism gripped our nation a few years ago. It's not like it's never been around, but it has really gained traction where what may be right for me can be wrong for you, and what's right for you may be wrong for me. Let's just respect each other and leave it at that, okay? I believe abortion's wrong. You believe abortion's right, okay? It, it doesn't matter. We just respect each other. You know, keep it to who yourself. Who really knows anyways, yeah. Right, who really knows anyways? And that's where that rel- moral morality, there's no absolute truth. And what makes us unique as children of God and people who are people of faith and of the Bible is we do believe in moral uh, absolutes. Mm-hmm. We, th- th- it, God said it, so absolutely it's true. And if God says murder is wrong, it's wrong. If God says lying is wrong, it's wrong. Because as much as you want to deny that absolute truth can be known, your moral stance will have an impact on the world regardless. Like you said, you can you can just dispute it day and night, but you're still destroying people or lives or communities or whatever else. Like, 
you 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 can't afford to take a non stance on morality. Okay, so let's say you're you're a person who who's a moral relativist. All right, here's where it didn't work too good for you. You're at work, and uh, the boss says, "I'm going to give you a pay raise. I'm going to give you a promotion." You're just all pumped up. Then the boss gives it to somebody else, and then you come to them and and you say, "I thought you said I got it." Well, I lied to you. Well, why yeah. did you lie to me? Well, I just didn't want to hurt your feelings at the time, but I, the whole time I meant to give it to Joe over here. Well, is, if you're going to get all bent out of shape, and you're going to say, well, that's wrong. Well, wait a minute. You can't tell him what's right and wrong if, if morality is relative. If he thinks lying's okay, then you know what? You have to accept that. Mm-hmm. Oh, when he gets close to home, if it hurts your pocketbook, if it hurts your feelings, all of a sudden you'll say, that's not fair. Oh, <laughs> so all of a sudden now we, we, we need justice. We know, yeah. All of a sudden we want some justice that's between right. our differing moral mm-hmm. systems. That's what I'm saying. People can get very idealistic until it hits close to home. And that's then you great. realize it doesn't work that way. You have to have somebody with, with ultimate absolute authority and absolute good character to create absolute moral truth. And there's only one person who fits that. The mm. government can't do that. We need to stop letting the government, boy, it's amazing. The government does not want Christians legislating morality, but they don't mind legislating immorality. Mm-hmm. They'll pass laws to kill babies. They'll pass laws. Praise th- God for what's going on in Texas right yeah, now, though. That's pretty great. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and just, a shout out, very disappointed in Chief Justice John Roberts, who sided with the liberals on that one. Mm. Um, I'm calling him out. Yeah. I'm calling him out. I, I have, he's a great disappointment. But uh, nonetheless, yeah, that's a great thing. But anyway, I just, it doesn't work. You yeah. have to have a moral standard. Yeah. And that's where, don't ever get duped into somebody saying to you, you you can't, you know, you're whatever, you're this. You're just saying, no, I'm not. I'm not. I, I believe in a God who is sinless and perfect and pure and that he gives me a law. Mm-hmm. He, he tells me what's right and wrong that comes out of his perfect sinless nature. What's your source? Your Yours is really shaky. You have no foundation. I have a foundation mm-hmm. of a divine being who is absolutely pure and perfect who gives me what and is right and wrong. And it's... And just kind of going for full circle now, it's not just a baseless absolute truth, but it's an absolute truth based in love, that every decision we make is to be one that loves our neighbor. It's not just we have the truth, but we have the best truth for the good of everyone around us. That flows out of God's holy nature. That's right. And we said this, I think, in the last podcast, but it flows out of his nature. Mm -hmm. So God doesn't arbitrarily say, let me see, okay, murder is wrong. Let me see, stealing is wrong. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do that. It flows out of his holy nature. So when we keep the moral law, ultimately, we are reflecting God. It, you know, it reminds me of this. I'd like your take on this. I, I, I like historical theology. I like reading historical theologians. And, um, you know, our movement as Pentecostals was born out of the holiness movement. Well, the holiness movement traces all the way back um, to Methodism, which was just a renewal movement in the Church of England. They didn't want to be a different church. If you go back and you read John Wesley, the source, who's the founder of Methodism, the source of his holiness um, uh, and his holiness teaching was what he would call perfection in love, that you would grow in sanctification to the point um, that God would do this work in your life where your intention 
is to love other people in everything you do. Now, he admits it's not that you always do that perfectly or that you're always without sin. Or His point is that the intention of your heart is to help the people around you. And I say all that to say this, maybe you've had a bad run-in with holiness, folks. Maybe when you hear the word holiness, you think somebody who like hates television and yells at other people or you know, you or maybe judgmental, all what you can't do. Yeah, you can't go to movies, you can't swim <laughs> these, with somebody yeah. opposite sex, All yeah, that legalism. These arbitrary things, but what, what all of that traces back to is is not, you know, John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield just trying to like remove joy from people's lives, but it was someone who was trying to stir up a revival in the Church of England that was based on love and a holy love, a love that's rooted in God that wants to not be better or judgmental or arbitrary, but truly wants to release that love into the world. There was so, a passion there. There was. There was a passion. The Pharisees were not always bad. The Pharisees started out in the Bible, because the Pharisees always get a bad rap in the Bible. Mm. The only ones worse are the Sadducees. <laughs> they were sad, you see. Gosh. Because they were, that's, that's they what I always heard. Yeah, they were sad, you see. Because <laughs> it, but, um, but the Pharisees started out really with this ardent passion mm-hmm. for God, and then they became legalistic. That's and, right. and I think the same happened in the, in the holiness movement. Uh, and I don't know if it happened with Wesley and the Methodism, but... Uh, it happened with the holiness movement in the United States in the turn of the of the nineteenth century, uh, or in the end of the nineteenth century, in the twentieth century, that um, they were just passionate for God because there was so much nominalism. Mm-hmm, that's and, right. And 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 in the in the or rather in the nominal churches, they were just there was they were dead, and yet then they went like the Pharisees and became legalistic. And so I think you're right. You have to have. The law has to be balanced with love and grace, or because it is love, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you if you keep it that way, yeah, if yeah. you make it too much law, and that's where you know the Bible says that that Jesus uh, came, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. How, how do we recognize or reveal God? He was full of grace and truth, mm-hmm. grace and law, and so there has to be the balance of, of the law and grace. Mm-hmm. And God is the epitome. He's the perfect example of the balance of law and that grace. That law and gospel distinction that we yeah. talked about last episode. We'll exactly. Come in full circle. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll read real quickly um, James and Jesus, and then I'd really like to talk, uh, I'd really like to end talking about Paul specifically in Romans, because we've really been talking about what the law is and its use in our life. But Paul has some great things to say about um, the strength to obey the law and and the work God does in our hearts. And I I really want to talk about that. But real quickly, James says in chapter 1, 19 through 25, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, 
and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. And so I think James is pointing out this uh, just kind of simple principle that God's not called us to simply hear the word. He's called us to be doers of the word, to look into what he calls the perfect law of freedom. It is perfect, and it is a law of 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 freedom. I mean, literally, it's a law of freedom. And so he calls us, don't just like hear God's truth and then not do anything about it. That's like somebody who goes in the mirror and forgets who they are, but to receive the implanted word, to let the gospel and all of its implications become part of my identity and then to go and act on it. <clears throat> and then finally, Jesus says this in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And then in John 15, he says, this is my command Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And so Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples. And what does it mean to be a disciple? It means that first you love Jesus and then you keep my commands. It, it, it comes from a love of Christ. That there is a, um, there's an interplay in Christianity between orthodoxy, orthopathy, and orthopraxy, meaning the orthodoxy, the truth of God, then begins the right truth, begins to produce right affections, love in my soul, which then produces right action. There's this interplay, this right. smooth flow. You got to say that again. So our <laughs> listeners are like, ortho what? Because ortho, ortho means right. Right. So orthodoxy, so right worship, which also can mean right belief. So the right understanding, so like doxy, like God a doxology, is. which is a, right. used at the end of a worship service. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just helping help our listeners. So orthodoxy, right so worship or right belief. That's right. It moves into orthopathy or the right affections. So your pathos is a is the Latin word, which is is your your feelings, your affections. That's right. So, so right affections or right feeling. When I know who God is in His love and grace and mercy and holiness, it produces the right affections in me. Right. And then with that understanding, now my whole person is engaged, both heart and mind, you know, soul and mind is engaged, which then moves to orthopraxy or my practice or right. my works and what I do. How I live. That's right. Right living. That's right. So right belief gives the right feelings and thoughts, which then is translated into, into right living. Boom. Bing. Orthodoxy, <laughs> orthopathy, and orthopraxy. That was just a fancy way to say it. Yeah. I'm just, uh, our listeners are hopefully liking this kind of stuff. So we've got through all that, but I'd really like to end our episode looking at um, a lot of things the Apostle Paul says here in Romans and a, a little bit in Philippians. Um, we've got kind of a long passage here, but <clears throat> we've talked about why the law is so good and why we should obey it and how the basis of it is love. But I want to talk about the empowerment to live, the work God does in our lives so that we can obey this law. What what does it mean? What's the difference between a sinner and a saint, a sinner and a Christian that makes us to be able to approach this law and obey it? And so um, I want to read what is a kind of a long passage, but I think it's really, really good. And the Bible's good and can... Speak better than I can, so just listen. And this is um, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, says this. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we may too walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may longer, no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ having been raised from the dead will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, Offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. That is really, really good. Oh, yeah. That's, that just blows my mind. Yeah, I always, always say that's the nine foot into the pool. Yes, it is. You're not, you're not in the kiddie pool here. You sure are. You're, you're over here treading water when you get into, into Romans uh, chapter six. And uh, yet it's so practical mm-hmm. because. Mm-hmm. It's telling you, you've been freed from the power of sin. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do what's wrong. And he says that in a lot of ways, offer the members of your body as instruments of sin. You can do what's right. Mm-hmm. You can offer the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. And what he's saying in essence for this podcast is you can keep the moral law of God. And it's based in union with Christ. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't listened, go back to our episode and listen to our episode on union with Christ. What Paul is saying is that we've been united to Jesus. And if we've been united to him, it means we're united in what he did. And what did he do? He died for sinners, and then he rose again in new life. And so Paul's saying, if you're united to Christ, then like mystically, spiritually, and ways we can't comprehend, it's like we were there on the cross too. And so our old Adam, uh, you know, our old sinful flesh is dead. It died on a cross 2,000 years ago. But then three days later, Christ rose again, never to die again, living for God in this new glorified, awesome body. And he's saying, mystically, spiritually, somehow, you've risen to life too. And so if the old you died on a cross with Jesus, who's representing all sinners, and then raised to brand new glorious life, never to die again, then that's true, that's true for you, which means you don't have to walk enslaved to your sin, but you can be free. Be and victorious be, over sin. Be victorious. There yeah. has been a change that has taken place of you because of your uniting to Christ, because of your death and resurrection. So Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. There you go. And the life that I'll, I now live... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's right. So you're living this Christ life, this mm. Jesus life that's inside of you because he's inside of you. The Holy Spirit's inside of you. You have this divine power, and that's why you can choose to do what's right, and you can choose to not do what's wrong yeah. easily. <clears throat> Sometimes, yeah, it's a challenge. Sometimes you get to the fork in the road, and for whatever reason, there's peer pressure, your flesh is fighting you, the devil is tempting you. 
but you still always have the power. The power of sin has been, another thing about Romans 6 is the power of sin has been broken in your mm-hmm. life. That's what he's saying. The power of sin has been broken. You don't, when you were a sinner, you had to say yes to sin. You were it, a slave. You were a slave to sin, just like a ma- it was a slave master, you, mm-hmm. you know, master over you. But now y- y- the power, it, it can scream and yell at you, but you can say, you don't, you don't have any power over me anymore. I do think it's interesting that what Paul notes here, though, is that the shift in your spirit, that you dying and rising with Christ, and like you said, doesn't necessarily make you a robot. There becomes, you you have to choose now with this great power not to. In fact, that's why he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. So Paul is preaching with this tension. Sin no longer reigns in your mortal body. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Sin no, no longer has control of you. Don't let sin have control over you. It's this tension of like what has objectively occurred, and yet there's this sense in which Paul is saying, You've got to live that out. Yeah, it has like, to I'm be handing sub- you the tools. Right. You got to do it. So how, now it's subjectively, <clears throat> how right. will you live? Objectively, this is a curve, but subjectively, you, how are you going to, you got to flesh this out. But you can't, and, and, he, and then he lives, or he gives us that promise to live in. Sin will not rule over you. So sin can't dominate us anymore. It's not our master. It can't tell you what to do. The only it way, will it, try. It, it, <laughs> the only way you can is if you give Let way it. to it, if you yeah. yield to it and work with it. And that's you don't want to do that. You want to work with God, mm-hmm. um, and, and so then, because I, I, I'm going to throw in here too, like Romans eight, you, your notes. So then, <laughs> brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. That's what we're saying is mm-hmm. you had to do it before, but you're not obligated. obligated anymore, yeah. Okay, but because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And mm-hmm. that's what he's saying is. You don't have to live that way. Yeah. By the power of the Spirit, the law of Spirit and life in Christ Jesus set me free from that law of sin and death. That's good. So that's really good. Yeah, I, I think that fits there too. Absolutely. And then I would say, you know, we're talking about um, <clears throat> something like objective, like when I got saved, Adam died in me. But what about that day to day? Where you know. Can I continue? How do I continue to rely on God's grace? And this is one of my favorite passages in Philippians because it holds so much tension and brings so much comfort. This is what Paul says. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You do it. But then he says, for it is God who is working in you both to will and and to work according to his good purpose. And so you may be asking, you know, all right, I know the old Adam's dead. Paul tells me, do not offer yourselves as slaves to sin anymore. It won't rule over you. What does that look like in my day-to-day? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but trust in this. It's God who is in you both to will and to work. That my life is not one of, of graceless, kind of white-knuckle, having to try hard as I can. He's like, man, work out your own salvation. And by the way, God's making you want to do it, and he's given you the power to do it. I've always looked at that verse as um, you do your part, God will do his part. That but they are not even. <laughs> that, but there's a partnership in discipleship. There is a partnership in salvation. And that's what we have to understand. And this concept of well, I'm saved. I got saved, so woo, I'm in. I'm guaranteed a priori. I'm in. Uh, now it doesn't matter how I live because 
I'm in. God's, I'm guaranteed. I have this assurance, blessed assurance, you know, that's wrong because that verse right there says, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There is a there is a day-by-day working of sanctification of me living up. I have to live up to what Christ has done in me. All right, he's done his part, and he will do his part, and he will, uh, unto him who is able, he, God is able, and he will do these things in me and through me, but I have to do my part. And if I'm not cooperating with God, then there's a breakdown. But I'm thankful that he, you know, his follow-up is, you know, he calls us to do our part, but it's God who's working us to want to do it and to be able to do it. And so the 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 passage is not there to put fear in your heart. It's to motivate you. It's to build it's to encourage you to do what you're saying and and to obey God, to walk in his ways, um, not in one in which I'm relying in myself and my own strength, but that God is showing up, you know, every step of the I kind of think of it like like if you're teaching a kid how to ride a bike with like training wheels or some, or you know or something like that like the kids pedaling but you and the training wheels are doing all of the work you know what i mean yeah. like the kid has to do it they have to step up there is a part in which they are you know they are pedaling and they have to you know have the boldness to get on the bike and do everything but ultimately the training wheels and the parent that's holding the thing and kind of walking behind them, making sure they don't fall. I imagine that's what God's doing with, with you and me. Oh, yeah, and another way to look at it is, uh, and you're about to have a, a son, uh, is when that son gets older, is you're teaching them right and wrong, and you teach them not to lie. You tell them lying is wrong. You model for them how to tell the truth. You show them the benefits. You model that. You're, but then the day comes where they're faced with a situation to either tell the truth or lie. I, I, I can't, at that point, I can't make them do one or the other. Mm-hmm. They have to cooperate with me. Mm-hmm. If they tell the truth, then they're going to be congratulated. They're going to be affirmed. They might be rewarded. If they lie, they're going to get spanking. And I, and I think that may be a, a, a really good way to ex- express how God is is teaching us and showing us through the law that what is right, what is wrong, here's, I'm doing everything in the power. The difference, the breakdown of my analogy is if I can take my my spirit of me mm. and put it inside my son, I'm enabling, but that doesn't kill my will. Mm-hmm. That doesn't negate my volition. I have to choose to work out my salvation. I have to choose to do what my daddy's told me to do. See what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So there is there is a power there. You're right. It's upside. But again, I, I flipped over here to Jude um, 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Mm. See? Yeah. You, you don't have to stumble and make the wrong moral decisions. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He, he's got the power to get you through every day to live right and do what's right. That's right. You just do your part and he'll do his. That's right. That's good. That's really good. So I hope that you've enjoyed this three-part teaching on the law. This is good stuff. This is uh, historic theology. And and I think this is really going to, it's so much practical application. And I, and I hope you've picked that up, but there's just so much good to it. I mean, imagine this in three episodes, we've talked about how you're supposed to interact with the government, how you deal with your moral conscience, moral relativism, how to evangelize, and how to preach better sermons for whoever that's for, and then uh, your power to live right for God based in a holy love. I mean, that is 
we're really doing a whole lot here. Uh, but I think this has been really good. Thank you for joining us. If you would, give us a rating, subscribe, share it, send it to somebody who needs it. I say that every time, but actually do it. We really think that it could help them um, and, and really bless them. But thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you back in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.